It is indeed a very blessed day for many reasons. I want to say something to each one of you as individuals before we get started on the study of the morning, and that is your presence here has meaning. God has asked His people, He seeks those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth together on the first day of the week. John 4, verse 23-24, Acts 20, verse 7. When we respond to God's commandment and obey His will, then we will receive the greater blessing. And so everyone that's here, if you will bring your heart into the worship, you will receive a blessing by being present. But even more than that, your presence here encourages the rest of us. We come together collectively because that's what God has asked us to do. And there's benefit because when we join our voices in song, when we join our minds in prayer and study, remembrance of the Lord and His death, when we give and contribute from our heart, all of these things that we do together, there's benefit and blessing as we encourage one another. So your presence here has deep meaning and purpose And I want to say there's nothing compared in a secular sense in the world that we could be doing right now that would carry even a minimal amount of the importance that you being here and you worshiping God has. Let's lift up our Savior together, our God of heaven, and let's make sure that we're bringing our heart in our worship to Him. As has been mentioned already, today is Mother's Day, our nation's annual observance to highlight the role of mothers. I believe that we do well to show appreciation often to those who live lives of sacrifice. The Scriptures certainly honor godly mothers throughout. When I think of a single word description that would be a synonym of the word Christian, the word that comes to my mind is servant or servants. I believe we could go to many passages in the Word of God and we could emphasize the fact that living daily as a Christian is a life of humble service. And I believe it's notable as we think about our mothers and what makes them so important And so unique is if we try to think of a one-word description of what they do, I believe it's the same word. I believe that our mothers are servants. Jesus taught that providing shelter for the shelterless, food for the hungry, clothing for the naked are sacred acts. And to me it is notable that these same acts are also the hallmark activities of our mothers. When we serve in this way with the right motive, it's as if we've done these things for Christ Himself. May we all give due honor to God-fearing mothers who give them, give themselves to service and to the task of shaping the lives of their children. May we take an influence from what they do in service and apply that to our own lives as Christians. May we look in whatever way possible to be a servant of other people and to do that with a loving and nurturing heart. Today we want to look at the subject, Godly Families Make Godly Churches. We'll be looking at this from a broader perspective than just the roles within the families like mothers and fathers, husbands and wives and children. We're going to look at it from the sense that God ordained two institutions in this world, and they're on the forefront of the graphic that you see on the PowerPoint behind you. The home and the church. God designed each of these specifically to bless His people. The first given and the most basic of these two is the home. The second came along later, But we could truly say that the church is the sparkling diamond of God's plan of redemption. It's the sparkling diamond that we read about in God's Word. In Acts 20 verse 28, the Bible tells us that Christ died to purchase the church. That's how valuable 
this institution is. We also note from Ephesians 3 verse 10 that the church is a display of the manifold wisdom of God. Can we imagine all of God's wisdom put to one institution on this earth and what that institution would look like? We're not left to wonder what the church looks like and we're not left to wonder about its importance. The world is full of man-made organizations, man-made religion, man-made designs for the home. In our graphic on the screen, these are illustrated by the many other structures that crowd the skyline. These counterfeit models distract and take focus away from the true institutions that God put on this earth to bless His people. The devil seeks to delude and destroy what God has placed here. And if he can cause us to lose our focus because of everything that's going on around us, then he has accomplished his goal. Look at the skyline on this graphic. All of these different structures, some of them looming even higher than the home and the church. Because Satan is the god of this world and he can make things look so good and so wonderful and so attractive, when in fact His plan through man is never going to bring us the best result. God gives us the best plan that will bring us the most blessings into our lives. In our study today, we'll show the close interconnectivity between these two most important organizations. And it is our goal that we all would have a clear perspective of what God's perfect design means to us as individuals, as families, and as the church. As the people of God, we must look at these things over and over and be reminded so we can make good choices for ourselves, our families, so we can keep the congregation going down the track that we read of in Scripture. I want to begin with a passage that we find of old in Joshua 24, verse 15. Joshua here is speaking as the leader of God's people, and he has this to say, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whom land ye dwell. But as for me... And my house, we will serve the Lord. This is a very well-known text. We see it on plaques, hanging in homes often. Homes that want to serve God. But I want to notice exactly what I get from this verse. Joshua was the leader of God's people. But first of all, he had to set his own life in order. Notice what he said, As for me, I will serve God. The Lord. That's where it starts with us individually. But not only did Joshua said, as for me, he said, and for my family and my home, my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua was prepared to serve God's people, his nation, because of what he had done with his individual relationship with God and what he had done with leading his family and setting his family in order. Notice here the 31st chapter, or verse of the same chapter. We find the statement, And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua, and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. So we find that Joshua's individual and family life provided the underpinning for him to be successful in leading God's people collectively. Even though this predates the church, this gives us a picture of what I want to present this morning. That as we live our daily lives, as we make decisions for ourselves and our homes, this will be interconnected to our ability to serve within the larger collective of God's people. This principle is found in Abraham as well. Notice this text from Genesis chapter 18. Remember, Abraham is called the father of the faithful. God went to him in Genesis 12 and He made him a covenant, made a covenant with him. And the third part of that covenant was that all families 
of the earth would be blessed through the family of Abraham. Abraham is a very important character in Scripture. And God chose him at least in part because of what is revealed here in verse 19. God said, For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. God said, I know Abraham. Abraham has proved himself. Abraham will command his children. Not only his children, he will command his household with him. And he said those in his family will keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. We find that Abraham in the 42nd generation of his family that Jesus Christ came to this earth. You can turn to Matthew 1 and read that lineage and it starts with Abraham and it ends with Christ. Why is that? Because God wanted the children of Israel, the family of Abraham, to provide a way, a lineage for Christ to come to this earth and to be the Savior of the world. Godly families have been at the center of those who lead God's people from the very beginning of time. And it's the same today for the people of God. This morning we're going to look at this subject in three different areas by asking three different questions. Number one, what is God a godly family? Number two, how do we build a godly family? And number three, how do families impact the church? You know, when we think about this subject, it almost comes without any explanation. The church is made up of people. It's made up of families. If they're strong, then the church will be strong. It also comes almost without explanation if we're a student of the Bible about how God has designed His family and how that the family working together can be a spiritual unit to accomplish things for God in His kingdom. And yet we are losing much of this characteristic and the understanding of these things in our culture today. As we said, Satan is deluding and changing everything from the individual life, the family life, and the church design that God has given. So we need to be careful to be reminded of these very simple designs that God has put in place. We need to emphasize them. We need to employ them in our lives. And we need to be able to teach those to others around us. So what is a godly family? The, book, the Bible is a book about relationships. This is often stated, relationship between God and humanity, between man and woman, man and humanity, woman and humanity, the relationship between husband and wife, father and mother and children. All of these relationships are given to us within God's Word. As the oldest institution that God placed on the earth Certainly we have instruction about what constitutes a godly home. We go back to Genesis chapter 2. We begin by reading verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. So we find that God's crowning creation was Adam. He took a, the dust of the ground and He formed Adam. And He put within Adam an eternal component, the soul that was fashioned in the image of God. Adam looked at all of the creation and he said, there's nothing suitable here to be my companion. And God said it is not good for man to be alone. So if we begin to think about the purpose and the design of the home, it begins with this marriage relationship. And the purpose of it is for companionship. We continue to read in verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. 
Woman is very special. She was not made from the dust of the ground as Adam was made, but in fact, she was made from the body of Adam itself. She was taken as a rib from his side. And she was created specifically to be a help meet for Adam in the way that he was created. God placed her there, the two of them together, where they would have the right companionship so they could work together to honor and serve God. We can see in these, this very simple passage that was written soon after the creation of the universe where God put the home together, where He put His design together. He stated the purpose of this. And as we go to verse 24, we will see the definition. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. This is God's plan for marriage. Couldn't be any simpler. There's three steps in the design of the home that we find here. We find the wording from Genesis chapter 2. I've got that listed on the left, and I've got our understanding or how we might word that in our terms today. Number one, the man is to leave his family of origin, the woman also to leave her family of origin, and they are to come and start a new entity. That doesn't mean that when a child reaches adulthood that they cut off their parents and quit having a relationship with them. It simply means that their relationship changes. They're no longer a part of their home of origin and they come together with their mate to bring about the focus and the love and companionship that is needed to make the home work. Sometimes marriage fails here because those adult children leaving do not cut off their ties back to that home and oversight of the home in a lot of different ways and when that happens, that undermines the design that God has given. The second part of that is to cleave. To leave and then to cleave. If you look up the definition of this, this means to join oneself closely to. And the thing that is intended by this phrase is to get married. This is the plan or the design. Leave your home of origin. Come together with your mate. Get married make the commitments that are involved in marriage, and then the third step is to become one flesh. This order is very important. God gave it this way. It will always be a blessing when we follow it in the order that He gave it. We read in Hebrews 13 verse 4, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. What about intimacy outside of marriage? Very plainly condemned in this verse. And we see by the order that God designed marriage, we're to leave, to cleave, to get married, and then the intimacy is to be in the marriage bed and in no other place. What about intimacy before marriage? 1 Corinthians 7, 1-3 Now concerning the things whereof you wrote me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. You see, the Bible touches on all of these issues that are involved in the design of the home. We're not going to have time to look at every one of these in detail. Today, we're taking an overview and we're looking at the foundation of what God's design for the home is. And the foundation is this marriage relationship that comes together in the order that God designed it and that the two parties in this marriage are committed to one another totally. They have the right agreement. They have the right commitment to follow the design that God gave. God has sanctioned intimacy within marriage. It's a component of being one. We're to be one in our 
seeking of God. We're to be one in our vision. We're to be one as husband and wife in the way that we want to order our family. We're also to be one in flesh. And that part is very clearly stated, but we're not to do that outside of marriage. We need to acknowledge God in all of our ways, not lean on our own understanding. Today, it's very prominent for people to try out a relationship before they get married. It's very prominent for people to never get married, to have multiple partners, to do many different things, calling that a lifestyle, calling it something that is acceptable and it's a trade, it's portrayed in so many places to be acceptable. But it certainly is not as we turn to the design that God has given to us. The institution of the family and its values are under attack. We can find alarmingly high rates of family breakdown, of problems in husband and wife relationships, problems in couples that are not committed truly to one another with disobedient children, and you know the solution to every one of these things is to back back up to this very simple foundational design for the home. It's not complicated when we look at it from God's perspective and what He designed for us and what will bring us the most blessings in our lives. Some would look at this design and they'd say, well, you know, that's 6,000 years ago. How would you expect something that was designed 6,000 years ago to be applicable to us today in our enlightened and modern society? The fact is, God has never changed this pattern for His people. Christ spoke about Genesis 2 specifically in Matthew 19. In the writings of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 31, we see the exact same design being repeated. Paul said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. As Paul taught about the home and about the marriage relationship in Ephesians chapter 5 that we're going to look at a little bit closer here in a few minutes, he said there was to be a leaving, a joining, and then a becoming of one flesh. Do you see how God hasn't changed that? Not from the time of creation through the time of Christ. Not has He changed it for this church age. It is commanded for us just as it was from the very beginning. This is still the thing that will bring us blessings, not the ideas and the designs of men. Well, how do we build a godly family? I believe that we can see the definition of it by the things that we've noted from the Scripture thus far. So this brings us to the next question. The commitment between husband and wife forms the foundation for a strong family. Leaving the other relationships, familial relationships, from their original standing and coming and starting that marriage and beginning a new relationship where the mates are totally committed to one another. Men and women are different. God designed them that way. And when they come together and they meld their personalities, their strengths, then they become what God wants for the stable home. Men are providers, generally less emotional. They're equipped for the roles that God has given them. In general, women are more emotional. They're more nurturing. Both are equipped, equipped to fulfill the roles that God designed them for. This diversity is just as God planned it. So to follow His design to build the right kind of home, then we have to work together. Not to change the roles, not to change the personalities of the people that fill those roles, but to bring them together and use the strengths of both to find the stability that is needed in the home. In Psalms 127 verse 1, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in vain. Certainly God's design of building the home 
will bring stability. Our own design or the devil's or man-made designs will not bring what is needed. In Mark 3 verse 25, Christ said, And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And so we're talking about the family, the house, the home that God designed. If the two components that make up that main relationship of marriage, if they're divided, if they're going different directions, if they have different concepts, if they're not both committed to the Word of God and willing to change to match whatever God's Word says, then that house will be divided. And I guarantee you that Satan will look for opportunity to take the differences between a husband and wife and use them to separate. Where God looks at those differences and He celebrates the ability of man and woman to come together and to provide those things that are needed for the home. A half-hearted commitment will not result in the strength to get through problems. None of us are perfect. We're all susceptible to temptation. We will all have weak moments. And so what we need is a strong commitment that will get us through any of those things that we're called to face. The agreement in marriage is a covenant. It is the most serious agreement that any individual can make. The word covenant is used over 270 times in the Bible. In most cases, it is used to describe the agreement between God and man. One example of that is in Hebrews 13 verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. As we think about a covenant and the serious nature of that, we bring that to marriage. In Malachi 2 verse 14, Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she the companion and the wife of thy covenant. You see, marriage is not a surface agreement. It's not something that we are going to try for a little while and then decide if we want to make it work. This is a covenant. And the characteristics of a covenant are that it is an agreement that continues even if it's broken by one party or the other. It doesn't cancel out. The parties are still obligated to correct issues and come back together. A covenant is permanent. It's based on unconditional promises. As we think about what God has done for us, we see the importance of all of these elements of the covenant that God has made with us. The covenant of blood that allows us to have salvation. What if it was short term? What if when we broke it, God immediately canceled it? What if it was temporary? You see, these things would be very limited in our make us very limited in our relationship with God if we took it in that way. We need to look at marriage from the standpoint of a covenant. It benefits the other person and it is a pledge. So God was very upset with these people because these men were dealing treacherously with the wife of their youth. This upset God because He looked at this as a covenant and they were not following through in their covenant agreement. In verse 15, the Bible says, And did not He make one? Yet had He the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one? That He might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. We need to be committed in our husband and wife relationships. This is the basis and the foundation that builds a godly family. If we get this part wrong, we will not be able to overcome by making other adjustments or arrangements in our relationship. There is so much counsel in God's Word that teaches us how to treat one another as husband and wife and how to treat one another as we parent our children, how the children are to be obedient to their parents, how the father is to not forsake the fact that he's responsible for bringing up the children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
But you know what? All of these other things that we can talk about are going to fail unless we get the right commitment and the right foundation to start with. This is how we build a godly home. The purpose of marriage is not just to have a romantic, warm, and fuzzy feelings. This is the world's idea. That's why that a lot of people stay together as long as they have that feeling, that romantic feeling, that surface love. But from a spiritual perspective, God has a much greater purpose. When that wears off, we still are to be committed to one another. Because that commitment means much more than just a surface emotional feeling. The ultimate purpose of marriage is spiritual. Certainly there is a physical, there is an emotional, and there's a social component to the marriage relationship. But the greater importance of this relationship is based in our relationship with God and the fact that we form a spiritual entity, a partnership, wherein we have spiritual responsibilities to God and to society. God has designed the family as the first source of spiritual training and preparation for life. We spoke about mothers who are living sacrificial lives of service to train their kids. This is one component in the home, in a committed home, where God has designed it to bring about the greater, the greater good. We are to receive spiritual inspiration and motivation and productivity in this special institution that God designed for our good. The families to provide physical, emotional, social, economic, but also the spiritual needs of the family. Many attitudes are needed as we look to serving husband and wife and the child component within the home that God has designed. I want to simply say this morning that the Christian attitudes of meekness, of long-suffering, of unselfishness, of patience, of forgiveness, all of these things that we should be developing as spiritual fruit in our lives as Christians, these are the very things that will build a solid godly home. We have the commitment, we have the design, we get the order in, in place, and then we grow spiritually and mature in our attitudes and in, in the way we handle our relationships, then we can build a godly family. Many times those that we're closest to are the ones that we treat the worst. We're not courteous. We're not humble. We're not long-suffering. We're not meek. We're not forgiving. And when we let these attitudes that are aside from what God's will for us dominate in our relationships, then we cannot build a strong marriage. Let's turn to Colossians 3, 12-15. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body to be thankful. I know this is a general admonition to all Christians, but look at this set of attitudes and these sets of actions that we need to implement in our lives. All of them based on love. All of them attitudes of unselfish, servant heart of other people. If you want a formula to build a godly home, Take these sets of characteristics and implement them in your life. Not in your relations outside, but your relations within the home. Love is what makes our relationships grow. We need to let it reign and we need to let it prevail in all of our relationships. We come to the third question. How do families impact the church? 
going back to our diagram, there's a bridge between the home and the church. Remember these two institutions that God set up that are most important, that we should emphasize above anything else that we find in this life. Notice there's a connection between the two. We know that, as has already been stated, that families make up churches, and it stands to reason that strong families will make up strong churches. I want us to think, though, to even a, a, a deeper symbiotic relationship between the family and the local church. In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, we have the passage that is often used to guide the relationship between husbands and wives. But this is also a statement of the characteristics of Christ and the church. Let's read this together. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. I want us to think about what we said in the beginning. God gave us these two institutions to bless us. The home is for our physical family. The church is for God's family. And both are based on covenant agreements. The blood that cleanses us that Christ died to purchase the church with is the seal of the covenant through the church. And remember, the church is the manifold wisdom of God. And so as we begin to look at the characteristics of this diamond that God's display of manifold wisdom and we compare that back to the church we see how closely connected that they are in design verse 28 so ought men to love their own wives as their own bodies he that loveth his wife loveth himself remember eve was taken from the very rib of adam she was his flesh and his bone and here we have that same symbolic connection that a man is to love his wife as he loves himself. 29, For no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Godly families make godly churches. Do we see the interconnectivity between these two institutions? Do we see from the physical side in the families, there's a leader, a spiritual leader, who leads with sacrificial love, that there is a wife that is subject to the husband. As Christ leads the church, the church is subject to Christ. As the children, male and female, could be likened to the members of the church, husbands, the spiritual leaders, elders, the spiritual leaders, wife, team with husband, deacons with elders, family, it is blood kindred, members, it's spiritual kindred, growth in our physical families, both in number and in, in mental capacity and all of those things we would consider growth physically, we have that in the church spiritually. And remember, both of these are covenant relationships. The home is a microcosm for the church. If we learn to behave correctly in our homes, in whatever role that we're to fill there, then we're much better to serve in the church. We know that elders are called to be qualified by being found to rule well in their own homes. First Timothy 3, 4-6 One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For a man know not how to rule his own house. How shall he take care 
of the church of God. So we're going back to the beginning when we mentioned Joshua and Abraham and what qualified them to be able to rule God's people collectively. And we see the same thing is important in the Christian age as we look at the home and the church. Deacons are also called to be qualified by ruling their children and their own house as well. Godly seed is also a very important part of God's plan for the home. We notice the example of Joshua and Abraham and how they were taking care of their families that came after them in training and teaching and in influence. We noticed clearly stated in Malachi 2 verse 15 that God's design for the marriage includes the proper environment to have godly seed. This is very important as stated in Deuteronomy 6.2 that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all His statutes and His commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son, and thy son's son all the days of thy life and that thy days may be prolonged. We're to train our kids in godly families. The kids thereby will have the things they need to form a new home when they reach adulthood and they will train their kids. And we see that process repeated over and over again. In Joel 1 verse 3, Tell ye your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children another generation. Part of what makes the home and the church so interconnected is the fact that the church is not a generational institution. It's something that God put here to last until Christ comes again. If our families are training their children correctly, then our families will remain strong and our churches in turn will have a future, a strong element of members that make up that church. What happens when parents train their children? We're told in a general statement that if we bring up our children in the way that they should go, that when they were old, they will not depart. Certainly there's exceptions, and we're all people of free will. When children reach adulthood, they will make their own choices. But Solomon's admonition is, was to train and give the best effort to give our children the right environment so that when they do reach adulthood, that God's wishes will not die with one generation, but that it will continue, not only with our kids, but our grandkids and our great-grandkids, and so on and so forth. What happens when parents do not train their kids? There's a couple of very vibrant examples of this back in 1 Samuel. Eli did not train his kids. They were priests. They brought much evil into the nation of Israel. In fact, Israel lost a battle with the Philistines and lost the Ark of the Covenant because Eli, even though he was the servant of God, he was the priest in Shiloh and served for some 40 years, we could look at him as a man of great accomplishment but he didn't train his sons. Shortly thereafter, Samuel, in fact, was trained by Eli. Samuel grew up and became a great prophet, a great priest, the last of the judges of God. But we also read that he did not guide his sons. And when his sons came along, they did not follow in the footsteps of Samuel. Isn't that a sad statement? considering these principles that we're talking about this morning, that we do not train our kids and we end up allowing our families to move away from God, we need to be very careful. We need to be warned that this is very important in design and in practice in godly families. I want to share a couple of personal examples that I believe show this very principle that I've tried to teach this morning. I want to talk first about Brother Will Hayes. This was a gentleman that was born in Tennessee in 1887. 
He moved to Gunner, Texas as a young adult. He had six sons and two daughters. He and his wife chose to live a godly life. They were active in the church there. They were totally plugged in to living for God and standing up for God. He served as an elder of that congregation and he was known for his hospitality and his wisdom. Brother Roy Hazelton was an evangelist that was working about the same time. He lived at Gunner and he worked along with Will and the other elders to build up the congregation and to Brother Roy was sent out and he taught the gospel in many, many locations in Texas and in all the neighboring states. Roy Hazelton was involved in building a relationship with a person in India that has given us opportunity to have evangelistic efforts there. Will Hayes' family remained in the church for their lifetime. His grandchildren were in the church. They were not perfect people, any of them. But the standard that Will and his wife set because of their dedication, because they could see the importance of a godly family, it has resulted in a great benefit to those that have come along in that family. Not only them, those that have married into that family, and not only them, but to many others that are in congregations where the descendants of Brother Will Hayes serve today. If I got the count right, there's been about nine elders that served in the descendants of Brother Will Hayes, six deacons, there's been a lot of evangelistic work done by the descendants of Will Hayes. My wife is a great-granddaughter of Will Hayes. She serves alongside of me in the things that I'm able to accomplish for the church. If Brother Will Hayes hadn't have made the decisions that he made, then how would that impact the ability for the church to be strong today? This is one small example of how this happens over and over again. I want to tell you another story. This is on the other side of my family. My grandmother on my dad's side was a woman of faith. Her husband, my grandfather, William Miller, was not a church goer till very late in his life. He loved horses and trading horses and doing things with animals. And he didn't really make spiritual things important. But my grandmother was a very strong lady. She took our family to church. There were three boys and two girls in my family. My dad was the youngest boy. This is in my dad's family. And he told me that his mother was diligent to teach him the Bible, to take him to church regularly. And she made that very, very important to her children. Yes, the, the perfect family design would be to have a spiritual leader there in the husband and in the father. But what happens when that's not available? We live in an imperfect world. We have broken homes. We have single parent homes. We have a lot of different scenarios. But the point is, if we will make a decision to follow God and to do what we can in whatever role that we can play, then we can make a difference. In my father's descendants, there's two elders, two deacons, and one evangelist. That's in his descendants or people that's married in to his descendants. And I ask you today, if it wasn't for my grandmother who took the time and the effort and would stand up for what was right in training her kids, where would our church be? We need to think about that every one of our decisions are much more important than just what happens to us individually, but it affects the people that are around us. It affects hundreds if not thousands of descendants that may come after us. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, the Bible says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois, and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded, and thee also. Timothy served within the 
the first century church as an evangelist. His father was a Greek. It's animated in, in the Scripture that he was not a part of the church. But his grandmother and his mother stood up and they made a difference in his life. And he was able to be productive in God's kingdom. Today's Mother's Day, we think about godly women and their impact. I don't believe there's any greater way to honor our mothers than in this effort in past generations to lead the way as well as in current generations where our mothers are training our children to be godly people. You know, we aren't guaranteed some type of impressive legacy, and that's not the point of this story, these stories. The point of these stories is not to glorify any individual or any man or any woman. The point of this is all glory goes to God because He's given us these designs. He's the one that has set these things in place. All we need to do is submit and follow His designs. When men and women serve God faithfully, raise their families according to God's pattern, then there's great blessings for individuals, for families, and for the church. I want to ask you this morning, are you the one who will start this legacy for your family? Maybe you've never had a background of anyone that's been godly before you. You can start that legacy by the decisions that you make. Maybe you've had a legacy like this. Are you going to take it for granted? Or are you going to continue to carry this influence forward on others? Start today, whatever you, wherever you are in life. Make decisions to seek God and follow Him with all your heart. And you will bring great influence for God and in bringing others to Christ. This morning, I would like to end with a invitation. If you've never obeyed the gospel, you're not a part of God's family. You need to start by obeying the gospel. We want to sing a song of invitation. If you've been taught and you understand how to respond to the gospel, we would invite you to come forward and make your wishes known. If you would like the prayers of the church, we would also encourage you to come forward as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.